Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Book of Revelation, Session 11, The Seven Letters of Revelation. Now, this is a subject that, um, you know, many of you, if you've read the book of Revelation a couple of times, you're probably familiar with. If you've been in this study, we've talked a little bit about uh, the seven letters, just kind of in an introductory way in, uh, I think, session one or two. But uh, what we want to do tonight is we want to uh, uh, use tonight as kind of a, an intro that we're going to then spend the next, I think it's three or four sessions on these seven letters in the book of Revelation. We're going to come at it from different angles in order that we could walk out of these next several weeks with a little bit of clarity of what's going on in these letters, what they're about, how they operate, all that kind of stuff. And so uh, tonight we're going to be looking at chapters uh, 2 through 3 in the book of Revelation. And uh, in chapter uh, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we find seven letters written to seven churches. And so what I want to do in this uh, introductory session tonight on these letters, is we're just going to do an overview. We're going to get into some of the depths. We're going to get into uh, some of the the key purposes and uh, ways that the Lord's trying to communicate through these letters in the coming weeks. But I really think that for us to be able to do any justice um, in the coming weeks, I think we better get a little bit of a foundation of what it is that we're looking at, what we're talking about. And so we're going to do this discussion on the book of Revelation, uh, and then, uh, well, I'll, I'll teach for about you know, 35 minutes, and then at the end of that, you guys are going to break up into groups and talk through some of the, uh, these verses and some of these ideas. So part A here on page one, if you don't have a copy of the notes, we have them available online as well as uh, we've got some paper handouts in the room we can get you. Uh, but for those of you who are joining on Facebook, uh, you can go to the resource tab on our website, and you can find the recent teachings. You can uh, listen to this uh, podcast later, or you can access the notes now. So part A on page one, I want to point out that we're talking about seven actual letters. Now, the reason I, I say that is because we're in the middle of the book of Revelation. And so we're in a, in a study on the book of Revelation. It's a bit odd. It's a bit different that in the middle of a book, we would have seven letters show up. You know, we're kind of used to reading the epistles in the New Testament and we read a letter that was written to the Ephesians or a letter that was written to the Colossians. But here we're reading the book of Revelation, and in the middle of the book of Revelation are seven letters. And we just kind of have to take that at face value. That's what's happening here. These are seven actual letters. And chapter 2 and chapter 3, the entirety of these two chapters are these letters. And so uh, I want to just give us the main and plain here that these are letters that were actually written. It's really obvious that they're being penned. They're, they're actually being written. Here it is at Revelation 1.19. John is told, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. And then Revelation 2.1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write stuff down, write a letter. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write stuff down, all seven of them. It said, to each one of these, write a letter, and then Jesus dictates the letter. And John writes down what Jesus is saying. So these are seven actual letters. First point. Second, they were written to historical churches. When I say historical churches, I mean real churches that 
really had things going on, leaders, circumstances, good times, bad times, real churches that really existed. And these were in the area of uh, what is a modern-day Turkey today, on the western coast of Turkey, if you kind of want a little bit of geography. In the uh, Roman world, it was known as Asia Minor. And there, there are these seven churches kind of on the coast of what is modern-day Turkey. And they were real churches. So we don't want to read the book of Revelation and specifically these seven letters and think of them as just fictitious or written to anybody. You know, they could mean whatever. They were written to seven specific churches in the modern day uh, nation of, <clears throat> of Turkey in that time frame. It was Roman territory. And so I gave you here, uh, bottom of page one, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here we have it. These angels over these seven churches and then John is told to write to these different churches. Here it is, Revelation 1.11. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These were seven letters that were written out to seven different churches. So these were real churches. Part C, the seven angels of the churches. Now I just want to you know, make this real clear. I want to try to go slow through these ideas so that we get them concretely. And so I know I'm repeating myself a little bit, but I, I just want us to get this because we can't really do a good job of studying these seven letters if we're still a little bit unclear on some of the most basic details. So these seven uh, angels are the primary angels assigned to each one of these churches. I want to say that a little bit differently. We're talking about seven actual churches, and to each one of these churches, there is one angel that has some sort of like significant level of responsibility to the point where it's called the angel of the church of Ephesus. The angel. The angel of the church of Smyrna. So no doubt there were other angelic uh, activity. You know, there was other angelic activity. There were other angels that were involved. But each one of these is entitled the guy. The main guy. The angel over Philadelphia. And so we have got these seven stars. They're called seven stars here. And these seven stars are seven angels. The reason I, I want us to make sure that we get that, multiple times in the, uh, in the context of Revelation 1 through 3, we see these seven angels called seven stars that are in Jesus' hand. Okay? So if you hear the, the term, the seven stars, just know it's the seven angels. Okay? Here it is. In his right hand he held seven stars. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in his right hand is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Okay, pretty simple. Seven stars, seven angels. Well, what about the lampstands? Because there's also seven lampstands. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, I don't know why Jesus, you know, gave us all of the details. We'll have to graduate to figure out a lot of the nuances. But the, uh, the gist of it is, when it's talking about the seven stars, it's the seven angels that are over the seven lampstands. And those seven lampstands are the seven churches that we're talking about. Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, all these, okay? So there it is. The mystery of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven lampstands are the seven churches, okay? So now we got it. We've now got all the keys that we need in order to be able to understand these seven letters 
we know that there's seven letters to seven real churches. There's seven real letters. There's seven angels, one over each church. Each one of these angels is given some sort of like significant role from heaven's perspective over each one of these churches. And uh, these churches are also called the seven lampstands that are before Jesus. All right, well, moving on. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you a little bit of a, a side. This is kind of a, a nerdy point aside. So if you want to check out for a minute and tune back in in a minute, that's okay. In the case that you spend additional time studying the seven letters, I want to uh, just go right at a point uh, that I believe uh, is made on occasion. It's not a uh, primary uh, teaching. If you read a bunch of commentaries on uh, Book of Revelation and on the seven letters and the seven uh, uh, churches, it's not a primary teaching, but it is one that you'll hear here and there, and I don't want that to confuse you. I, I want to be able to just kind of uh, nip this thing in the bud, and here's the gist of it. There are some, and it's not many, but there are some uh, scholars, commentary, uh, commentators, that believe that these angels are not angels, they are humans. And they believe that they are uh, uh, human messengers, like the apostolic leaders who were over each one of these churches, okay? And there again, I believe that that is incorrect. But the reason that they believe that is because there are occasions in the New Testament where the Greek word that's used to describe angels is also used to describe a human messenger. The Greek word can be used to describe a human messenger or it can be described a heavenly messenger, okay? So I just want to look at this here for just a second. Let's move on to uh, page three because I think that uh, just gets down to it. Part C. First of all, angels are frequently in the Bible referred to as stars. Frequently. So remember the seven stars? They are the seven angels. That's right. That would have been a good chance for you to say angels out loud, but that's okay. I'll pretend. So the seven angels are this, or the seven stars rather, are the seven angels. There's a bajillion places in the Bible where God is using the term star and he's talking about an angel. So this idea that we have here in Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, it's not the first time that stars equal angels. That's actually a common theme in the Bible. But it is not a common theme. In fact, I don't know of a single reference where a person is referred to as a star in a direct sense. There are there is an occasion in Daniel where it says they will be like the stars, but there aren't any occasions that I can think of, and I did a little bit of research on this, where a person is called a star, but there's lots of occasions where angels are called stars. And I gave you a bunch of references there. Some of those, just to give you a little, if you're going to go study it, some of those references are overt. It's clear. And some of them are referencing or inferring, and I just wanted to make that point. But like, here's a great one. Isaiah 14. This is one that we're, you know, used to. It's all over the Bible. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star. It's talking about Lucifer. Son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth. You once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. This is talking about um, the, the morning star as, as Lucifer being a star. So it's not unusual for angels to be called stars. Okay, now back to the point that I want to try to do my best to give you a bit of refuting on. Remember I told you that the Greek word can be used for a messenger, either a heavenly messenger or an earthly messenger. It's uh, angelos is the word, the Greek word. 
This uh, Greek word, while it's true that it can refer to either, it's listed 176 times. It's, and of those 176, only seven of those is it referring to a human uh, agent as opposed to a, a heavenly agent. Okay? So seven out of 176. So the odds aren't awesome. Okay? But more than that, John himself, John the Apostle, uses the word 100 times. John is the primary user of the word in the New Testament. There's 176 references. John has 100 of them. Okay? Of those 100 references, and that's including the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Book of Revelation, okay, all the books that John wrote, John uses it all over the place. He uses it 100 times. Nowhere else, anywhere that John uses this word, does he refer to the word angelos as a human messenger. He's always referring to an angel from heaven. Always. So what would have to be the case here in the book of Revelation in chapters you know, 1, 2, and 3 is John would have to break his own protocol and, and divert his, his thinking and, and the way that he's using that word and all of a sudden start talking about a human messenger. I, I think there's absolutely no reason to believe that it's a human messenger other than, I guess it's, I don't know, easier to believe that John was writing to humans as opposed to writing to angels, okay? But as far as I'm concerned, it's a pretty clear uh, picture here that John is writing to the angel, as in the heavenly angel, of each one of these churches. Uh, the, uh, the scholar and commentator, uh, George Eldon Ladd, wrote on this subject. I just gave you, he's, he's kind of one of the uh, main guys on the book of Revelation. If you start reading commentaries, you'll wind up coming across George Eldon Ladd. Here's something he wrote about this subject, trying to address this very point. The expression, angels of the seven churches, represented by the seven stars in the hand of Christ, is difficult, especially since each of the seven letters was addressed to the angel of each representative church. This fact has led many commentators to conclude that the angel stood for the bishop of the church. This would be a good solution to the problem, except for the fact that it violates New Testament usage. Angelos was not used of Christian leaders, and in the seven letters, neither angels nor bishops were rebuked. So this is just a little side point there. Okay, now we're back to paying attention. So if you all checked out, you no longer have permission. You have to check back in. Everybody back in the game, okay? The main themes of the seven letters. This is a really helpful component, okay? When you start thinking about seven letters, how am I ever going to get my head wrapped around seven letters? Oh, my gosh, he's probably writing this way to this group and this way to this group. Jesus made it so easy. I'm, I'm thankful when he makes it easy for us to get lots of information in a simplified format. I'm very grateful when we can get lots of information and it comes in a simplified format. That helps guys like me understand what's happening. The book of, uh, or I'm sorry, these seven letters, they follow the exact same format all seven times. It starts with something and then something happens and something happens and something happens and it ends some way. And it's the same all seven times. So once you've got the flow, once you've got the format for the first letter, you know the format for all seven. Once you kind of know what to look for, you can then start to see the trend, and now, oh, man, this isn't so hard. There's only one or two things that are actually different about each letter, and they're not different in flow. They're different in some of the details. Oh, because Jesus was talking to that group, he said this, but he's talking to this group, and he said this, and it's really, it's kind of the same. So let's just look at that real quickly. 
Now, <clears throat> this is something we're going to develop in the future sessions, but I just want us to get kind of a, just an overview, just a little broad look at it here. Jesus starts off each letter, all seven, the same way. He identifies the church and he addresses the angel of that church. So in each one of the letters, he addresses the specific church congregation by name. Well, that makes sense. That's kind of, you know, that's like how I would write a letter. I'd write your name up at the top. That's what Jesus does in his letters. All seven of them, he writes the name up at the top. Next, this is a cool thing. He identifies himself using specific names, but he does it in each letter. Each time he writes to one of these seven churches, he identifies himself to that church using different names, different descriptions of himself. He identifies himself to that church a little bit differently that actually fits their circumstances and their difficulties. That's so cool. That's so Jesus. Making the communication tailor to his audience. But again, it's not random. It's not like he does it at the beginning in this letter, in the middle of that letter, in the end of that one. He does it right after the introduction. This is how he starts each letter. He says, hey, church in Ephesus. And then he identifies himself using some specific phrases and descriptions about himself. That's really cool. Right after that, he starts to give encouraging words to that church. He says, I know you. I've seen you and you're doing good here, here, and here. Unless they're not. And if they're not doing good, then he doesn't have anything nice to say. And there's a couple of those. But in every other case, he's highlighted the good things. And actually, the ones where he doesn't give a, an exhortation, that's a real problem. Because Jesus found something nice to say about all of them, except a couple. It's like, dang, you, you guys really, really need to get with it. Because Jesus, like nice Jesus, was, was coming, like he's digging deep and finding ways to exhort these different churches, and he had nothing kind to say about you. That's a really bad thing. After he gives these encouraging words, he gives them a scolding. Each church, except one, each church, he rebukes. And he says, he says, listen, I, I said those nice things about you a minute ago, and they're true, but let me tell you what else. This thing in your midst is an area of compromise. This is an area of failure, and you need to get it fixed. He addresses the areas of compromise and failure, and he warns them that they must address these things lickety-split. They must make addressing these areas of failure, these areas of moral compromise, these, these issues in the church. He says, I've identified them. They are real. They are big, and you need to deal with them. He identifies the issues, and then he says, oh, and I've got really good news for you. If you don't fix the issues, I'm going to come and it's going to be really bad for you. That's, that's not the good part. That's the promise. If you don't fix these problems, I'm coming and it's going to be bad. Because he gives them some strong warnings. He says, but if you just do what I tell you, I'm going to give you eternal rewards. <laughs> if you do the thing I'm telling you to do, first, you won't get judgment, which is a really good thing to avoid. Second, you'll make me really happy. And third, I will give you eternal rewards for your decision to address these shortcomings in your midst. This is how Jesus ends every one of the letters. He promises them eternal inheritance specifically related to the repentance over the issues and dealing with the issues. This is awesome. Who knows how to write a letter better than Jesus? Who knows how to motivate the human heart better than Jesus? The book of Revelation has more. We're going to spend a whole session on this. More eternal rewards than any location in the Bible. I mean, it is chock 
full. And so many of them are found specifically here in the letters written to the seven churches. Eternal rewards, specific things. Jesus says, if you do this, you'll get this. And if you don't do this, you will not get this. This is not just given out to everybody. If you do this, I'll give you this. And if you do this, I'll give you this. And this, I'll give you this. Forever in eternity in heaven as part of your eternal reality. On top of the fact that you're saved and you live in heaven forever. Extra goodies. Eternal rewards. Your salvation is free. You cannot work for it. You will never earn your salvation. Don't even try. In fact, if you try, you probably don't understand the truth. You cannot earn your salvation. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about one billion extras on top of being saved and living with God forever in heaven. One billion eternal rewards that are tied specifically to tasks and things and areas of repentance and, and specific deeds that we do in the earth. And Jesus gives these promises to these churches. So just run through it one more time. The seven letters all follow the same flow. And there's the flow. First, he says, hi, church, and he, he addresses the church specifically. Then he says, you know me, and he tells them specific details about who he is related to his name and the way that he relates to them. Next, he gives them some encouraging words. Next, he gives them some rebukes and warning that they need to repent of those specific things that they just got rebuked over. And then he says, if you do that, I will give you these incredible rewards, and it's going to be awesome forever. That's the pattern of the letters, all seven of them. One, two, three, five, six, seven. What? That's not so hard. I mean, now that we know that, we could actually like read these letters and make sense of them. All right, the context of these writings. The context is crazy. These letters are written in the absolute most bizarre, interesting, and powerful context imaginable. I'm just thinking about the last time you wrote a letter, okay, whether it was an email or a physical letter. Think about where you were and what was going on around you. Like, probably a pretty normal situation, coffee shop, your home, you know, whatever. Pretty simple, normal situation, normal day, normal circumstances. <laughs> John's circumstances were totally crazy. Let me give you some of the context here. The time frame of these letters, just so you know, was somewhere between 90 and 95 AD. Most of the scholars agree. Okay? So these letters are written sometime in between 90 and 95 AD. John's an old dude at this point. He's believed to be probably around 90 years old or more when he wrote these letters. Okay? John is this aged apostle. He walked with Jesus all his life. He's, he was the guy who was, you know, closest to Jesus uh, during his earthly ministry. He's now had 60 years of Jesus being gone or more. And John is still running after Jesus. John is this aged saint, and he is now writing down these letters on behalf of Jesus. Jesus says, write the stuff, and John starts to pen the things that Jesus is saying. Can you just imagine being the one that Jesus found worthy to be the scribe of the letters that Jesus wanted written to the seven churches? Hey, 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 come here, I need you. Are you busy? Are you bored? Let me borrow you for a minute. Whoa, whoa, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, you have this crazy encounter. He says, yeah, I need you to write down some letters for me. Really? You're having me write down letters? That's You like encountered me, resurrected Jesus, glorified body, walking amongst the lampstands, and you want me to write down some letters for you? Like, this is crazy. Yeah, John, are you in? Yes, I'm in, I'm in. The uniqueness of these letters. Again, in the, uh, the, the two things that we just want to make sure that we understand, that don't 
work against each other, they're just not normal in our mindset, is that these letters are unique in the fact that of all the New Testament letters, these letters are found in the middle of the book of Revelation. These letters are not isolated epistles in the New Testament. These letters are part of the book of Revelation. They're not separate from the book of Revelation. They're part of the book of Revelation. But they were actual letters that were actually penned to these seven uh, churches. So think of it this way. John is told, hey, John, you're going to write the book of Revelation. It's going to be 20, you know, two chapters long. It's going to be awesome. But as we start this dialogue, I need you to write down seven specific letters that we're going to send to seven churches. And in addition to you sending those to those churches, you're also going to make sure it's part of the greater work of the book of Revelation because I want it all written down forever. I don't want those letters to just go out to those seven churches and be forgotten and lost. I need them to be part of this big-time document that's going to help fuel the church at the end of the age. So these seven letters, they are unique in the fact that they are, they are specific letters with specific recipients but they were also dictated to be included in the book of Revelation, this revelation that John has about Jesus. John is writing these letters from the Isle of Patmos. This island was a prison island. It was barren. It was difficult to get anything to grow there. When an uh, emperor or whatever the, um, the, the ruling bodies, if they sent somebody to Patmos, it was a death sentence. You didn't go to Patmos for vacation, okay? It wasn't Padre Island. You go to Patmos to die, all right? It was barren. It was just, it was kind of like a way to get pushed out and forgotten because there was so little uh, resource there. And, I mean, it was prison. It just was also an island, okay? Uh, it's believed, and this is subjective, but this is a church history uh, belief. It's believed that John was banished to the island after Emperor Domitian was infuriated that John didn't die when he was thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil. He's just mad. He's like, I can't kill you by oil. I'm just going to send you to that island and forget about you. And so John is on this island, and he's intended to die there of starvation and loneliness and shame. And John is like having the encounter of his life. Instead of dying, John is alive, man. At 90-whatever years old, he is having the most wild encounter imaginable called the book of Revelation. I mean, we just, we have such backwards thinking about the way that God wants to encounter us sometimes. We just imagine that everything has to be perfect and the, the situation has to be right and all this. God found John on a desert island, if you will, where he's got a death sentence and God gives John perhaps the most wild vision that anyone has ever had in the history of ever. And John writes it down so that we would then have access to the book of Revelation uh, for the church here now in this hour. All right, so that's the encounter that John has when he, he's, uh, uh, where he's at when he's, he's writing these letters. He's having an encounter with Jesus. Look, Revelation 117, I'm in the middle of page 5. When I saw him, Jesus... I fell at his feet as though dead. John's on this, on this desert island. He falls as though dead in front of Jesus. He placed his right hand on me. He said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. So this is John's encounter 
where he's getting this letter. This is just the most interesting way to write letters to churches. Have an encounter with the resurrected Jesus on an abandoned island where you're a prisoner doomed to die in your 90s and you get the most important revelation for the end times that probably has ever been given to anyone ever. This is just incredible. And then he's dictated these seven letters to write to the churches. Now, one more point about why I'm pretty confident that these angels are angels and not humans. Again, I don't think there's actually any reason at all to consider them as humans. I don't think that the text would give you any uh, inference that that's the case. But one of the reasons that I feel even more confident that these are definitely angels is John is on a prison island, okay? And it's not like they just put you on the island and there's no guards because then you could just get on a boat and come off the island. And So John is on a guarded prison island, all right, that's got really dire circumstances. And John's in prison. He's not at youth camp, okay? So he's not like being tended to and taken care of and pampered. He, he wasn't killed by Domitian this way, so now he's in this prison scenario. Here's my point. He's not like getting to have visitors and send letters to whoever he wants and like, you know, do just whatever he wants to do. John is in a very difficult situation in, in a, a dire circumstance, okay? These letters that were written, they include details about circumstances that would happen soon after John received the revelation. And they were warnings about specific circumstances that the churches would need to have in front of them in order for that warning to be of any value. Meaning the churches had to get the letters in a very short period of time after John wrote them. Okay? What better way to get the letters there than by Angel Express? Okay? Angels, historically in the word, are messengers on God's behalf. I mean, you've got occasion after occasion where an angel shows up and says, hey, I've got a message from God. Here it is. It just so happens that Jesus wanted this particular revelation of these seven letters dictated uh, to John. John write them down, and then the angel of each one of these churches, I guess, come pick them up or something. One way or the other, the angel of each of these churches got a hold of these letters and delivered them to these churches because some of the information in these letters was dealing with future events that were not so far in the future that the churches needed access to that revelation. I don't mean the church at large. I mean the church of, of Smyrna needed to know the details of what was about to happen in Smyrna. And some of the details in the letters were specific and directed towards these churches. So they got these, uh, these letters, or otherwise... Why did Jesus tell John to write them if they were never going to wind up in the hands of the recipients? And these angels delivered them. All right, let's look at some of the purposes here, and then we'll break into uh, some discussion groups. Purposes of the letters. There's a lot of purposes. We're going to go deeper in this in the coming weeks. But the first and primary one that I think is uh, clear is that we're supposed to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the churches. Each of the letters includes this phrase, top of page six, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each of the seven letters has that line. One of the main reasons that we're given the seven letters is so that we could know 
what the Spirit is trying to communicate to the church. Next, to identify the difficulties of the day. We look at the landscape of persecution, the rampant false doctrine, the confusion about various uh, uh, truths in Scripture, the compromise that was abounding in that day. These letters inform us, they identify the difficulties that the church at that time was facing. Oh, but it goes deeper than what the church at that time was facing. Because remember, John was instructed, John, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. John was told these seven letters that are written to seven real churches right now while you're alive, John, with information about their real church experiences right now, these seven letters, they need to be given to those seven churches. Oh, but John, you must include them in the revelation that the church at the end of the age needs. Why? Because these truths, these teachings, these letters give us incredible insight into the landscape of the earth and the culture of government, the culture of the nations at the end of the age. The details, the yuck that we read in the seven letters to the seven churches, the compromise that we see, the difficulties, the persecution, it's all part of the very crystal clear picture of what will be the case globally across the earth at the end of the age. The book of Revelation, after chapter 3, chapter 4 through 22, there are so many references describing the context that we are actually reading about in Revelation 2 and 3. But these, Revelation 2 and 3 are to the, chap, or to the, the uh, letters of the seven churches. The details of those seven churches will be amplified on a global level in every sphere of the earth, in every corner of Christianity, the issues that we read about to those seven churches will be even more pertinent, even more important for the church that's alive at the end of the age in order for us to be able to study. And that's the reason Jesus wanted those written in there is because the information included in Revelation 2 and 3 is to be written, therefore, to show what has been seen what now is the case, and what will take place later. The book of Revelation, all 22 chapters, is a revelation about the end of the age. It's a revelation about Jesus Christ, and it also gave specific insights to what was happening in that hour. Okay, well, at this point, we're going to break up into groups. And so uh, we've got, uh, if I can have all our group leaders stand up here. All right, so i got Jeremy over here. I've got uh, Luke here, Andy there. Um, John over here and Cass somewhere, not, not Cass tonight. Oh, not John. Oh, Cass over here. Okay. Uh, and how many? Six. So we're going to break up into groups. Go ahead and move the chairs around. Listen, if you can try to do groups of six or seven at max, if you've got eight people in your group, chase a couple of them off and tell them to go to one of the smaller groups. All right, ready, go. You guys got your question over here, Luke. Okay. You got yours? And a backup. Cass, you guys got your question? Yeah. Okay, we'll we'll give you a minute then. Okay. We'll we'll have you be last. All right, let's let's go ahead and transition. And uh, now we're gonna do uh, the time of QA. And again, the objective of this time is after you've had a chance to dialogue, 
uh, to then go, what's one point that it would be good to get a little bit more clarification on uh, for each group and then for that to be filtered through uh, the discussion group leader. So that's what we're going to do here. Um, we'll go ahead and start here. So the question is, John's on this island. How did the letters get off the island? Um, I think that this is, this, I, I think that we take the book of Revelation at face value unless it says to do something different with it. These letters were written to angels. Angels go deliver messages. These messages weren't originated with John. They were originated with Jesus. Jesus said, John, I need you to write a message. All seven angels are going to come pick them up and bring them to the churches so that the message can get out. I mean, I, 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 it seems obvious to me that that's what's happening here. And part of the reason for that is think about every other time any other angel was given a message from God to go tell a group of people or a person or, you know, in, uh, was it Peter in uh, Acts, I think it's five, where... He shows up at the prison, and then as soon as he opens the, the gates for him, an angel shows up and opens the, uh, the prison doors, he then tells Peter, go outside and declare loudly the message of the gospel. Well, that angel didn't do that on the angel's own authority. The angel was given instructions like this. It just so happens that probably, we don't know, was the angel given the instructions straight out of the mouth of Jesus? Or was the angel given instruction in heaven from another angel that Jesus told that angel? We don't know how the hierarchy works related to messages being sent out from heaven. We do know that angels act on behalf of Jesus to do his bidding. So Jesus says, hey, John, I want to involve you this time in these seven messages. It's important to me that the church forever sees you involved in this process in a very intricate way. I actually think that's even a little bit of a tip-off of some of the increased level of angelic activity relationship to the church in the coming uh, hour in, in the times of greatest difficulty. We know that principalities are going to have greater impact. It would be unjust and odd for God to allow principalities to have greater authority and impact, a greater heightened level of the demonic, and have no answer for that with there being no increased activity of angels. So I think the activity of angels is going to increase. But to me, it seems simple. I, Jesus told John, John, write these seven letters to these seven churches, uh, to the angels of these seven churches, so that these angels can then go deliver these messages to those seven churches. So I think that John, and this is just how I see it, I think that after John had this original revelation, he probably had seven visitors show up. And all those angels, either they came the same day or different days, or how, I don't know how all that works. But the point is, the letters were addressed to the angels. So at some point, those angels had to get the letter that was addressed to them. And then the letter wasn't actually for them to go, man, as an angel, I really need to do some inner searching about how I'm doing. Those angels were given those messages so that those angels could do what angels do, and that is deliver messages from God to people. And so then they went out and delivered the messages to the appropriate churches that they were in serious jurisdiction over. So just one more point. There's no place in the New Testament where we have any precedent at all for a human being called the guy of that city and that church. 
that we don't have that. What we do have is specific areas where both demons and angels are assigned to churches and territories and regions and nations. We've got precedent for that. We don't have any precedent for a human being seen as the guy. All the churches, they were, they were appointed elder bodies. And there were elders leading like group leadership. So there wasn't such a thing as like a the guy over that church and that church. But there would be angels over those churches. So great question. All right, let's go here. Oh, boy. That's a great question. The question is, why didn't Jesus just get the message to the churches? Why did Jesus give John the instruction, John, write these seven letters to seven angels that then are going to wind up getting the messages to these churches? Why? I think one of the most significant reasons for it is so that it would forever be part of the book of Revelation. And so, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing that the Lord does People that have lots of, lots is the wrong word, people that have had a number of really incredible heavenly experiences haven't had a thousand. They've had a handful or two handfuls, but not a thousand. I mean, top-level crazy encounters. I, we all have a bunch of encounters with the Lord at various levels, but I'm talking like what John's experiencing here, Jesus wanted to have a one-and-done with John. God, Jesus wanted to encounter John and give John the revelation once like this, okay? This level of revelation, it, blew, it almost killed him. I mean, he fell like a dead man, okay? So Jesus is packaging all the material that is very pertinent for the end of the age, for the church at the end of the age. He's packaging all of it in this one encounter that John is having with Jesus, and he's given the revelation all 22 chapters, and it just so happens that chapter 2 and chapter 3 have a dual fulfillment, a dual purpose, a dual audience. The seven churches of that hour and the church at the end of the age. And Jesus very much wanted the content of those letters to both be given to those churches and also included in the, uh, uh, in the revelation. And again, that statement... Um, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord says to the churches. That's said all seven times. It's this constant ringing in the ear. Church, pay attention. Church, pay attention to these messages. Church, pay attention to these messages. So I, I believe uh, that uh, one of the most significant reasons, instead of Jesus just getting those letters, sending, having the seven angels show up to Jesus' throne and say, Hey, angel of Ephesus, go tell Ephesus this. Hey, angel of Thyatira, go tell this. I think forever these seven messages have been pertinent and have been just so important to the church all throughout the history of the church, and they wouldn't have been uh, documented this way. We may have lost them. I mean, there's a lot of letters in the New Testament we don't have. I mean, it's not like Paul only wrote nine letters ever in his life or whatever, you know, whatever the number is. There's a lot of letters we lost. Je Jesus very much wanted these letters to be included in the revelation of Jesus that would go all throughout church history and be pertinent to the end of the age. And so he included it uh, in this format in a 
wild, powerful, crazy, unusual uh, way. But it, you can just tell it was like so on purpose that Jesus did it this way. So that's, that's kind of my thought on that. Uh, yeah, Andy. Why these seven? Why not the others? Best answer I can give you is uh, I, I don't know. Okay, I don't know. I, I can speculate that these seven, because of the, um, the significance of these churches in the Roman Empire during the period of persecution, these seven were receiving the heat in perhaps the greatest measure of the fire in that hour. And so what's happening here is these seven churches are needing to be encouraged real time right then in the midst of their persecution. I mean, it was very pertinent to them right then. And I think that it's important that the number was seven because, as we've talked about before, seven frequently is a communication point from heaven of fullness. And so Jesus is trying to encourage those seven churches for real and also trying to make a point about the holistic purposes of, I didn't pick six, I didn't pick, you know, 23, I picked seven churches, and they just happened to be in the seedbed of the, the greatest persecution under Domitian who was the emperor, uh, who was the Caesar at the time uh, in Rome. And so I, I believe that those are some of the reasons, and I am sure that there are layers and layers of depth of revelation about why those seven uh, that uh, you can probably study and spend some time praying and asking the Lord and, and uh, get uh, more revelation than what I just contributed. So I, I think my understanding on that particular point is probably pretty uh, shallow. So, uh, Cass. Okay. Well, that is great. So their question was already asked. Um, well, worship team or worship person, come on up here. And uh, <clears throat> let's pray. Again, guys, the objective here for this study is to go this slow that we could catch it. And so I'm excited now that we've got a foundation. I'm really excited about the next several sessions where we can start to look at some of the, uh, I mean, really break it down into some of the uh, more micro themes of these letters so that we can start to get it. And I think that there'll be some just even some discipleship gained uh, in looking at these seven pastoral letters that Jesus was writing. So, This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.